Hi, and welcome to the End Times Guy podcast. Great to have you along with me. As we continue on looking at false teachings that have permeated the End Times Church, Paul warned Timothy, man, in the last days, perilous times will come. These are perilous times. Even the elect will be deceived if that were possible. And I'm here to tell you, it is possible. I am one of the elect. I know that. I was born again, filled with the Spirit of God, had the Word of God written on my heart, tasted the heavenly gift, felt the purification from my former sins, and in spite of all that, was led away into religion, into dry, dead, powerless, lifeless religion that had me believing I was a sinner saved by grace, that nothing was required of me, that God did everything. And all I needed to concern myself with was being happy and comfortable in this world, in this life, and God would look after everything. And every Sunday I went faithfully to church and I asked forgiveness for my sins that I committed during the week. And as long as I could have a feeling and and maybe be a little heartbroken and have an emotional moment, I would go away feeling like everything was okay. And I'll tell you now that in that time, if I had died, I would not be going to heaven. And that's all there is to it. You know, um, we live in an age where people are prone to say what is comfortable and pleasing and reassuring. And that is so deadly. It used to be when the preachers got up and ministered, if you were walking in sin, they had you trembling in your boots. By the end of the service and you went out and you got things right and unfortunately we don't have ministers like that anymore they've been replaced by brilliant orators gifted orators who stir our emotions and bring us to weeping and tell us great stories and we go away entertained and encouraged well that's not a church service that is a form of entertainment Now, one of the false doctrines that has crept into the church, it's one of the most toxic and horrible, is that we are all sinners saved by grace. And that's simply not the truth. When Jesus judges between the sheep and the goats, he he tells the sheep, come on in, well done. And he tells the goats, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. You know what another way of saying that is? Depart from me, sinners. So, Jesus says the sinners are getting the boot. How can you be a sinner and accepted by Christ? You're either a sheep or a goat. Now, there are two men in the Old Testament who embody the difference between the sheep and the goats. And that is the first two kings of Israel. King Saul was a goat and King David was a sheep. God says of David, he's a man after my own heart. What's that talking about? Why is David a man after God's own heart? Well, I'll tell you, at the very heart, at the very core of who David was, he loved what was good and he hated what was evil. And all through his life, he was steadfast in that. He truly hated what was evil. When Saul was hunting him for no reason whatsoever, Saul found himself at David's mercy, not once but twice. David could have stuffed a spear into his chest and gone on to rule over Israel. That would have been the end of Saul and his house. And if David operated like any other typical Middle Eastern king, he would have quickly put the whole house of Saul to death. 
even in Israel, that was done. One of the judges, one of his sons would go on and murder his 70 brothers so that there was no dispute for the throne, that he alone would receive the throne. This was a very common Middle Eastern practice of secession. You just killed the opposition. So typically a Middle Eastern man would have killed Saul and then gone and killed every child of Saul's as well. So nothing of the house of Saul remained. But David has this opportunity presented to him. And he says, I will not do a wicked thing in raising my hand against God's anointed. And this is the character of David. He wasn't focused on what was best for him. You know, what was best for him was to kill Saul. If he was worried about himself, if he put himself first, he would have killed Saul that day. But he didn't. He put God first. When Goliath stood up and mocked the armies of God, David wasn't worried about his own hide. David was worried about the glory of God. David's, David's focus was on God and his glory. And he couldn't stand by and let this big mouth run his mouth against the living God. Now, Saul was head and shoulders above all the people. Saul was a giant in his own right. But nowhere in the Bible is he called a giant because he wasn't. He was just a tall man. A lot of philosophers, I, I call them pseudo philosophers, say that, you know, these giants in the Bible are referring to gigantism like Andre the Giant and people who have an a large dose of growth hormone in their body. No, that's not the case. These are the, the Anakim, the Rephaim, the children of the fallen angels who were much larger. I mean, Goliath was one of the last of them, one of the smallest, and he was wearing 150 pounds of armor. Just how big and strong do you have to be to wear 150 pounds of armor? Now, what Robert Wadlow was a giant, according to our terms, I believe he was over eight feet tall. He could hardly hold himself upright because of gigantism, that, that defect. Um, he walked with a cane and he couldn't hold himself upright. Goliath didn't walk with a cane. He wore 150 pounds of armor, carried a 30-pound spear and a sword around with him and fought in that gear. Now, if you're going into battle, you don't want to be so weighed down with armor, you can't fight. So for Saul, 200 pounds of armor and weapons wasn't a big deal. Now, his uh, relative, I'm not sure if it was his grandfather or not, Og of Bashan, was slept on a bed that was nine cubits or about 13 feet long. If your bed is 13 feet long, you're dealing with something a lot bigger than a birth defect. And uh, David would not put up with the way this man was speaking to God's people and speaking of his God. Now, clearly, if David was concerned for himself, he wouldn't be going out facing a giant that Saul wouldn't go out and fight, even though Saul was about 6'6 or taller. And if anyone should be out there facing life, it certainly was Saul. But Saul was looking out for himself. Saul wasn't about to put his head on the chopping block in front of Goliath. I'm, I'm not going out there because Saul was con concerned about himself. He wasn't concerned about the glory of God. He wasn't concerned about the name of God's people. He was concerned about himself. And that would go on to be 
a theme in Saul's life. Saul's decisions were based on what was best for Saul. David's decisions were based on what was best for God. That's the difference between the sheep and the goats. You can't make it any plainer than that. One is jealous for God. One is jealous for themselves. And make no mistake, Jesus said, you must deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. If you want to follow me, you better do it like David. Don't be a Saul because you're wasting your time. Now, I went for a while and learned to walk like Saul. And I'm thankful that God called me back by the power of his Holy Spirit so that I didn't continue walking in the way of Saul. If I'd continued to, I would have died in my sin and I would have been cast out of the Lord's presence. And David is wonderful in that when Absalom takes over the kingdom and he, David is fleeing, the, the people want to go up and, and battle on his behalf. And David says, no, leave it in God's hands. If God is, um, has nothing left for me, then there's nothing we can do. But if God perhaps will have mercy on me, then I will once again see the ark. So, you know, David realized that he was in a relationship with a living God who could be pleased with him or could be furious with him, as God was clearly furious with Saul. God was the one who sent a tormenting spirit on Saul. We have to remember that if we're doing things before God that upset him, then we have to anticipate that we may experience the wrath of God. And understanding the dynamic of this living relationship, we learn the fear of God. Why would we want to draw his wrath when through walking in obedience, we can draw his grace and his love? Now, going back to sinners saved by grace, we need to understand how important sin was. David was a righteous man. David loved what was good, hated what was evil. But David still ended up doing something truly wrong, didn't he? And David's example illustrates uh, James chapter 1. I think it's around verses 13 to 16 where we see that sin is a whole process that takes place. It says, I'll kind of rough it together, that when we are dragged away and enticed by our own desires, that's step one. We are dragged away and enticed by our own desires. When that comes to fruition, it gives birth to sin. That's the next phase. And desire gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully conceived, it leads to death. This is why Jesus died right here. This is why sin is something we have to be thinking about and we have to be talking about. Sin gives birth to death. And David's example really shows us clearly how that works. So it began one night on the roof of his house. He was sitting up there relaxing, enjoying the cool evening air. And he looks down and lo and behold, a beautiful woman is taking a bath. David has a choice to make. He knows what the right thing to do is and to turn his eyes away. And I'm sure the first night he probably did. But then on a following light night, he happens to notice her again. And that seed is planted within him. 
and night after night, the desire grows to lurk and to take a peek and to observe and to let his eyes run freely over her as she bathes. And over time, they probably became aware of each other and it became somewhat of a game between them. But as this game was going on, the dark desire, the, the wickedness in David grew and grew and grew. His hands would shake. His heart would beat rapidly. His breath would shorten and quicken. And the anticipation of that forbidden fruit became the equivalent of what Eve was looking at in the garden. And David could not help himself. He threw off restraint. He threw off what he knew was right. And he told his servant to bring Bathsheba to his chambers and committed the sin. You see how he was enticed by his own desires and they gave birth to sin. And this led David to become an adulterer. And that in Israel is a sin that leads to death. There is a sin that leads to death and a sin that does not lead to death. And David had just committed a sin that leads to death. But that was only the beginning. You see, sin, when it is conceived, brings about death. And we're going to see just how much death that is. So first of all, David wants to use more sin to cover up his sin. Instead of going to God and repenting, which, by the way, David is very good at, he doesn't. He decides he's going to deceive Uriah the Hittite, one of his 30 valiant warriors, a great strong man in Israel. David brings him home and says, you know, go home, relax, put your feet up. And Uriah is a noble and virtuous man. It's why he was one of David's chief men in the first place. He refused to go home while the soldiers were out on the battlefield. Instead, he slept in David's doorway until morning and he was ready to head back to the front lines. And David said, no, no, sit down and eat and drink with me. Let's tell war stories. And they talk into the night drinking. And now David is sure that his scheme against Uriah will work, that he'll go home drunk, lay with his wife, and David will be off the hook. But Uriah, even after drinking the night away with David, is not going to bend. He stays another night in David's doorway and then goes back to the front lines. And David hasn't gotten himself out of this mess at all. So David decides to up the game a little. He will use even more evil to cover his sin over with. So he tells Joab to send Uriah into the heat of the battle and have the men pull back. This is cold-blooded, calculating, first-degree murder. David has now committed another sin leading to death, heaping wrath upon wrath upon his own head. He has an innocent man put to death. A man who served him fearlessly and valiantly. And David has done the unthinkable. And this is King David who loves what is good and hates what is evil. It's so out of character. It's so unlike David to be doing these things. Well, this is sin at work within us. This is what sin does. Once it's got a foothold and begins to grow within us, we find ourselves down a very dark and disturbing path. And then Nathan comes with the word of the Lord and says, So David, if a man who has a hundred sheep is anticipating company, and he goes to his neighbor who has one sheep that he loves very dearly, and he takes that sheep away and dresses it and cooks it and serves it to his guests, would 
What should we do with a man like that, David? And David loses it. He's furious. We're putting that guy to death. That's it. You know, David knows the difference between good and evil. And David still loves what is good and hates what is evil. But in the depths and of darkness of his sin, he is blinded. He is not seeing clearly. And Nathan has to spill the beans to him. I'm talking about you, David. You and your all your wives and your porcupines, you have all of these things. And you went and you stole Uriah's little ewe lamb that he loved so dearly. And at that moment, David, his eyes were open to how great his wickedness was. And now David wept and repented, but that didn't make everything better. God said, this is what's going to happen because of your sin, David. Now, Uriah had already died as a result of David's sin. This child that he and Bathsheba conceived would also die. Then his son Absalom would rise up against him and shame David and all of Israel. And Absalom, his son, would die, whom David loved very dearly. And the sword and trouble would never leave David's household. Do you think in hindsight, David might have walked a little straighter line if he knew all of this hell was about to unfold in his life? Do you think he might have turned his back away from Bathsheba and never looked on that rooftop again? I think very clearly he would have never sinned against God. This is sin. This is the monster under the bed. The thing we're not talking about. It is a Leviathan that once it begins its work in your life, look out because it's bringing death and blindness and darkness and destruction with it. Pray and confess your sins to one another that you might be healed of them. Jesus has come to set the captive free. In other words, to set the slave to sin free. Paul is not ashamed of the gospel, for in it a righteousness from God is revealed, a freedom from sin. This is the power of God at work in mere men like you and I. So we need to look into our own lives intently and decide, are we a King David or are we a King Saul? Does our heart burn for the things of God? Or does our heart burn for selfish interest? And we have to be honest with ourselves. And there is no such thing as a sinner saved by grace. It is my desire, my heart's cry, that all people are saved by grace and no longer enslaved to sin. But we can't allow the people around us to continue on believing something that's simply not true. Jesus says clearly, depart from me, you sinners. So. In closing, we need to take sin seriously. We need to talk about sin. We need to understand the very course of sin once it gets a foothold in our lives, the destruction and blindness it brings to us. And we need, where are those preachers who would get up behind the pulpit and leave us trembling that we might not be walking fully um, before our Lord and God in humility and purity? So. Thank you so much for joining me and God bless and keep all of you.